Hello, welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I talk to the people who make travelling and eating such a delicious adventure. Hey there, welcome to another episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is a bit of a modern-day Renaissance man. He was born in the US of Italian parentage, but moved to Italy as a teenager and studied at university. He then went on to become a high school teacher in northern Italy, but quit to follow his twin passions, food and wine. Today, Silvestro Silverstory is the owner, founder and director of the Awaiting Table Cookery School in Lecce in the south of Italy, one of my all-time favourite Italian cities, where he's been teaching people about the food and wine of Puglia and in particular Italy's Salentine Peninsula since 2003. In addition to his vast knowledge of the food and culture of Puglia. Silvestro is also a nationally certified sommelier of wine plus extra virgin olive oil as well as being a wine writer for several publications. Today we're going to talk about how to cook and eat like an Italian. Welcome Silvestro and thank you for joining me. Silvestro you've done a postcard for us once before from your beautiful city Lecce but for the benefit of the people who haven't listened to that can you tell us a little bit about the city? Sure. So I live in the center of the historic center of Lecce in Puglia, which is down in the heel of the boot, of the Italian boot. And it's almost as far south as you can go. The city has 3,000 years of history. Most people, when they visit Lecce, see the Baroque era. So 1600s, early 1700s, a lot of very ornate buildings, a lot of wrought iron balconies and whatnot. And I also spend a part of the year in the 40 minutes south of here in a castle teaching classes there as well. So I have sort of a, a, a secondary home that I often go to. It's a nice little break while still working. Very nice. So do you have your, your city clothes and your castle clothes? I tend to wear the same thing for both, but it's certainly the the feeling of the two experiences are, are radically different. Leche is a very, is a, has a university, so it's very, very urban, very sophisticated, a lot of beautiful wine bars. And the castle is, when we first started having classes there, it was, the population was 7,000 and now it's 2,000. So it's a far, far older population, classic Italian population, two children. And it's just it's a, very, a very different experience. It's the, the much more country charm, mm. you know, even though it's a, it's a village. Mm. And you run the wedding table from there, which is your cooking school. Do you consider yourself a chef or a cook? I, well, that's an interesting question. No. So I come, came out of the humanities. So I did three university degrees and I started up, I started my life in the U.S. and then I moved back to Italy by myself as a teenager and I applied for a lot of grants and I studied in Italy in university from 16 until 29. So and the entire time I was, I was cooking, but I was also doing a lot of very blue collar jobs. I was, I cut meats, I baked bread, I picked artichokes, I picked grapes, I picked olives, did a lot of stuff. And then, and then I'd also study humanities. So I studied sculpture and languages and music. And then at 29, my mother begged me not to go back to university again. And so I taught high school for three years. And while I was doing that, I was, I, I loved teaching. I was very interested in food and wine. I did not like what the state wants to teach. Italian has a lot, a lot more theory than practice for, for my taste, as far as what's the edu- educational burden. And so I started looking around and I had had friends that were working in IT in different four or five different countries 
every time their their companies would downsize, they would come over and say, look, I have some money. Let's go for a trip. You plan it all. So without even realizing it, sort of my secondary job was being a tour guide and arranging all the food and all the wine through mm-hmm. Spain, through France, through Northern Italy. It was wonderful. Yeah. And I'm really still, still friends with all those guys. Mm. And, and so it was just, I, I loved that part of it. And so I decided, well, I'm going to open three schools. I'm open one, one in the South, one in the North, and one in the Central. And I thought well, the South would be least expensive. I love the South. I had some, had some ancestral background, grandmothers from here. So I started to look as being open-minded as possible. And in the end, I ended up choosing Glacier. That was in 2002. Yeah, we celebrate 20 years this year of the first school. And Glacier has really, really developed. I mean, in the meantime, the the wine programs, the wine festivals in the historic center, I'm part of the jury of the Negro Mato Festival every year. And it's really developed as a city. I mean, there was no money in the 60s and 70s, and I guess 80s. And now it's, it's a very sophisticated, very beautiful European city. Yep. I'm lucky enough to have been there twice. So it's one of my favorite Italian cities. So let's talk about how Italians eat. Can you talk us through a typical breakfast, lunch and dinner? Sure. So I think it, most so breakfast is going to be the same for, for just nearly everyone. It's very small, sweet, and usually with coffee. It is rarely is it very celebrated. It's often had standing up either in a bar or at the home, but usually big sweets and, and coffee and maybe a glass of water. A lot of travelers have very skewed ver- version of, of Italian breakfasts because they're eating in hotels. And the hotels are also catering to Scandinavians and with the boiled eggs and cheeses and everything else. I've seen it a couple of times in the extreme north, Fiuli, where you see a savory breakfast. But otherwise, it's it's very, very small. And the goal in, in Italy is to sit down famished twice a day. Mm. You contrast Italy and Spain, where Spain, you're kind of nibbling all day long. You have the second breakfast and and you walk to the market and popping things in your mouth. And Italy is don't eat until the tablecloth goes down and then sit down, eat a significant amount of food. Don't touch food again for five hours. Right? Mm. Really rare to eat, eat between meals. I particularly like Italian breakfast because I, I take a childlike delight in eating biscuits or cake for breakfast. I sure. absolutely love that, that you don't feel guilty about having cake for breakfast or biscuits for breakfast. For sure. So I think lunch really, lunch and dinner are really going to cut across the culture. So if you work in an agrarian job or anything that's sort of skilled trades, you're probably going to have a much larger lunch than you would dinner. If you are university graduated and living in the city, you're probably going to have a much larger dinner than lunch. So I do, I do a lot of manual labor, sort of ways of learning how to, to teach. So picking whatever still do that even on my weekends and whatnot and very often when i have lunch in the countryside with essentially workers they consume far more wine with lunch than they do with dinner and it's usually almost equivalent of a holiday as far as this always set up in the same order obviously where you have the the carbohydrate first we're in southern italy so it's always pasta it's there's very little risotto very little polenta here i mean not even not even once a year kind of consumption but the so the carbohydrates arrive so that before the protein so that you can consume less protein and be more satisfied. So essentially, you're almost full before the protein arrives, which is always the, the most expensive element. Mm-hmm. So it, it's psychologically it's set up set out really really well. And then all very often when when like harvest meals or whatnot, you would definitely have some sort of sweet at the, the end of it. In southern Italy, finishing maybe I should qualify this with Sicily is a little bit different because they have much more of an Arabic culture. But finishing on, on, on sweets on the, during the course of the week is very rare. 
most of the time you'd finish on either a vegetable or some sort of a savory element, and that, that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not we're having chocolate cake every day kind of a thing. <laughs> really, really only Sunday lunch do you see that. And lunch and dinner are similar in that? No, I would say the lunch and dinner, if you had to if you had to make a general statement about it, is that the meal has been cut in two and you start you have lunch and a vet for pasta and a vegetable for lunch, vegetable and some kind of protein for dinner. And probably again if you're more of a white collar background. And so you had definitely pasta in the lunch at lunch. I was talking to Benedetto Cavalieri, the son of Benedetto Cavalieri, the pasta maker, who we were sort of almost brother in laws. He was saying that he and that outside of Italy, he has a really easy time selling his pasta as a dinner concept. And inside of Italy, he has a really hard time selling it for dinner. Okay, that's really interesting. Something else that I find interesting and a little puzzling, actually, I've heard the term Italian street food, particularly in Sicily, but I honestly rarely see Italians walking around eating except maybe for gelato. So yeah. what is this Italian street food and when do they eat it? Well, so street food comes it comes and goes in and out of fashion. Very often, not surprisingly, when there's an economic downturn where you can't go to a restaurant, certainly during COVID as well, street food became much more important. You had one of the most basic examples would be roast chickens that were all the rage throughout COVID because when people wanted their food prepared for them. But Italy has a very high quality lifestyle, for, especially for the in, incomes earned. And very often that sort of special treat would not be a, a big meal at 100 euro a head, but a rice ball in the street or whatever else. It's not so much consumed while walking. It would be much more either taken and eaten someplace else, but very informally, like on a, a bank or of a, of a street or mm-hmm. a church, church steps or whatever else, or even taken home and treated like takeout. Mm. Yes. The thing that's interesting about street food in Italy is how how it cuts across classes, too. It's, I mean, you see two lawyers eating a slice of pizza on Mm. first step is every bit as common as seeing students do it or whatever else. Mm. Okay, interesting. So Italian food has traveled far and wide, but not always well. What are some of the dishes served as Italian in other countries? Well, we might think they are Italian that are actually not. Well, that would be, that goes by country to country. But I had an Irish honeymooning couple come to the school a couple of weeks ago. And they said, each time they would, we would talk about a dish, they would say, now, is this a starter or a main? Mm. And I just looked at, I, I said, well, that's, it's, it's neither. Or what, what, what you know, there, there are more dishes than just starters. First of all, there's no translation of main, right? Mm. And it, took, it, it was the first time I realized that, that they are, are do not realize that there are two Italy's. There's the Italy of Italian menus in Ireland, and there's the Italy this country that you know on, on, after the after the airplane ride. I think if, if I think people that come to Italy or want to cook Italian food outside of Italy focus on recipes and think that, that it's a secret recipe that some pudgy grandmother knows that that if they can just get their hands on that, then all of their the food issues are going to go away. And really, it's it, if if you want to cook it more Italian, it's more about taking the the theories and practices behind it, which is if you had to boil it down to one thing, especially in the South, is find good things and don't don't screw them up. Mm. So sweat in the market, not in the kitchen. Make make sure your effort is in finding really good things and then doing less to them. I like Keep- that, sweat in the market, not in the kitchen. But there are specific dishes that we think, and spaghetti bolognese is, is a typical dish that many people believe <laughs> sure. is, is Italian. 
I have never had spaghetti bolognese in Italy. Perhaps they do it somewhere. I've just never had it. So how did that come to to be representative in some countries of Italian cooking? Yeah, it's, it, seems to, it's, it seems to be unique to the English-speaking world. The history of it certainly started in England or it was transformed. So regula bolognese is inevitably in Bologna served over tagliatelle. So and tagliatelle is a fresh egg pasta. Spaghetti is a dried factory pasta, semolina pasta. And so it's a, it's a very strange combination. We, that's something you would ever see in Italy. But if I said, on tonight I'm going to make, I'm going to have a French night and I have to use the ingredients of relation to cook French food, I know mm. there's going to be a lot of com- compromises inside of that. Mm. So it personally doesn't bother me when I see somebody posting a recipe or whatever else. But the, every year, I don't know, maybe every two, two years to be fair, someone sends me a link of some British journalist that comes down to find the real bag bowl, as they call it, come down to find the real one. And they, and they're all just flabbergasted that they, oh my God, it has milk in it and it's never served over spaghetti. And then 24 months later, some other journalist does the same thing. Mm. Uh, and then uh, it doesn't seem to change the British habits. And I don't, again, I don't think that it should. I have no problem if it doesn't. Mm. But yeah, there, I mean, I think you can change the name of it, even from Parmigiano to Parmesan mm. kind of a thing. To, to acknowledge the fact that the dish has been changed, mm. has been now being looking through the filter of this other country. It's very rare that I will see a photograph of a dish and not know if it's inside of Italy or outside of Italy. Mm. The very first thing is usually there's a large piece of bread on the on the border of a, of a plate of pasta, and we would never do that. Mm. That's just too much too much starch. Mm. Mm. I had possibly the worst pasta dish I have ever had in my life. It was a long time ago, but I'm still quite traumatized by it. <laughs> It was a friend's boyfriend who became her husband later and they invited us over for dinner and he cooked this spaghetti. I think it was his first time ever cooking actually and he just cooked and cooked and cooked the spaghetti Mm. till it was like these fat, swollen, waterlogged worms of spaghetti. Mm. And then the, the ragu that he made was literally mince, that's it. There was no mm. tomato, there was no onion. It was like this greyish mince and he put it on top of the the pasta. So terrible. But anyway, if we do want to up our Italian cooking game, and most of us want to, I mean, everybody loves Italian food, right? Mm-hmm. What are the essential pantry and fridge staples to have? Well, assuming that we were all, we're all busy and, and very often start thinking about a meal right before we have it or or that day versus actually long planning. I think having two or three really high quality extra virgin olive oils in the house based they'd be based on different cultivars. So treat them like we would wine. There's mm. a convergence meter I'm gonna have with something. I'm gonna have a, a Shiraz with something else, that sort of thing. And then I think uh, having a, a lower quality sort of supermarket oil for sauteing. Mm-hmm. I think keep keeping cured olives in the house is a really good idea. And this might be a bit controversial, but I think there we've there are several preser- preservation methods that we've fo- we've found as humanity that really excel. I think canned beans, canned lentils, frozen peas. Mm-hmm. I think keeping those in the house they're easy. So treat them almost like you would fast food. So rather than say, all right, I'm, I'm tired, I I need to I'll, I'll call and order something that's probably going to be really high in fat and salt. I I'm, I can get a dish with ten plants in it on the table. So essentially a you know, protein-based salad mm-hmm. or whatever else in, in virtually no time at all. Mm-hmm. And then you take those things that many of those ingredients are essentially low-calorie, high-nutrient ingredients, and you jack them with olive oil or your, your high-quality extra virgin olive oil over them. 
suddenly, I mean, it's, if it's a, if it's a vegetable with all high quality olive oil on it, mm. that's probably going to take your tongue to Italy faster than anything else, especially mm. Southern Italy. That's mm. really, really what the, the flavor, the dominant flavor is. Mm. It's not that the, it's not that meat is re- refused here. It's, it's not really, it's not the star of the show. Mm. The vegetables are. So what would you spend money on and what would you save? You've talked about having those tin and, and things like I have jarred artichokes, mm-hmm. for example. And, I, you know, I don't mind using those. But what are some of the things that you would say spend money on? So you've sent good olive oil. What what else would you spend money on? Yeah, I would. So I would spend more. So you figure what you like really like for a bottle of wine. We normally spend for a bottle of wine you really like. And I would go higher than that for a bottle of olive oil. A bottle of olive oil is going to last you far longer than a bottle of wine. It's going to raise your antioxidants, your polyphenol consumption. Mm. It is. It's, it's, it's very, very pleasurable to eat something with high quality olive So I would spend more on those. And I, I would spend wisely in those, not not buying them at the airport, not buying them at the really trendy store. Mm. If you have, you know, if you have a. A, a, a deli or some 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 sort of family owned places that are places that are a little more manageable. Also, I I think that if you if you get the spirit right of sweating in the market versus the kitchen, I think you can also widen your gaze as far as look at other other markets. So there are plenty of things that if you went to the, an Asian market and if you were to saute them and put extra virgin olive oil in them, they would be much more like what you find in Italy than putting tomato sauce in, in a white melt of white cheese over it mm. versus something you'd find. Mm. I think a lot of people think it's, that it's a series of, of recipes versus just a sort of inspiration or, or, or spirit. Mm. And that spirit can, can be applied to many, many, many things. And very often they don't end in a vowel, right? So you can go to a Portuguese <laughs> market, go to a, go to an Asian market, farmer's mm. market. Mm. Yeah. What about something like a good piece of pecorino or parmigiano though? Sure. So I think, yeah, well, obviously, if that's if you, if you have access to those things, and the, the, I, I would imagine, and for your listeners, those are all going to be some of the more expensive elements of the, mm. of, of the dish. I, I've said this before. Also, if you if you're really looking at and cheeses that are prohibitively expensive to buy because they are important, you can also look at go by texture versus nationality. So a, I don't know, Spanish goat cheese that's, that's gradable will be closer to an Italian goat cheese that's gradable if you can't find it or if it's prohibitively expensive. But obviously, yeah, I mean, if you if you have it, to, I mean, we all hit a certain point in life where assuming we have means that, I, that what am I actually spending my money on mm. now? And, and almost everyone arrives at that they would like to travel more and then eat better while they're doing it. So spending money on food. I mean, Italy, France, and Japan still spend higher percentage, even though they're modern and, and the modern says wealthy countries, mm. still spend disproportionately on their on food and and, and wine. Mm. And that's, I mean, it's, that, that proves that it's, proves that it's a priority. Right? Mm. So. Well, I mean, it wasn't always that way in Italy in particular. There is a thing called cucina povera, dishes that were created through need, you know, for, economic reasons sure. rather than anything else. Tell us a little bit about Cucina Povera and what it what it means. Well, there, there are several schools of thought behind it, one of which is that Povera is not a reference to poverty. Povera is a reference to anti-noble. So you had essentially the nobility, which would be hiring cooks and have the very often maybe 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 like lobster in Dubai or this kind of truffles in you know, someplace they don't do really affectation, proving that you can eat these things. Here we have a lot of dishes that have rice. Obviously, the rice doesn't grow anywhere near here. So it, this was the, it was the aristocrats trying to pass as Spanish because the Spanish, the Spanish dominated southern Italy. They they ate a lot of rice. 
So a lot of, of a sort of affectation of maybe like kings and queens would, would eat nowadays. Cucina Povera indicates that it was actually by housewives, by women cooking with limited ingredients. But I wouldn't necessarily jump to Povera as meaning poverty. Mm-hmm. More, more just the inspiration was, I, I, I define cuisine as how groups of women solve scarcity over time. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you didn't have something and you had to figure out the workaround and you did it and you were also motivated by love. And this is why I think I, I you asked if I'm a chef, I'm, I'm exactly the opposite of a chef because the chef always wants to change, needs to change the dish as his or her signature. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is how I do this. And I'm exactly the opposite because I, I don't exist in it. I'm, I'm all for preservation. I want to keep the dish the way it was because there was, there's a, there's a beauty in how that, how crafty women figured out how to make their families as healthy and happy as possible with with one hand tied behind their back with very limited ingredients. Mm. And the second you take a a dish that has that humility baked into it and you start adding truffles, lobster or whatever else, you lose that, you lose Mm. that, that that human story in it, which Mm. is, I mean, that's the most compelling element. Mm. Uh, But as I said, I I come out of humanities versus a, 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 versus a cook, Mm. but keeping, keeping that, keeping that intact, is I think not only is it really good for the future because everything is spinning so quickly, things are changing. Mm. I mean, if you, we have 59 different countries at the school, but all of them have eaten sushi in the last 24 hours. All of them have eat, watched the same Netflix shows. We're all, I think it's moving towards a sort of a global standard. And Italy seems to be fighting against that, those changes more than any country that I'm aware of. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm definitely part of that battle. And as you say, preserving the stories of those women, it's an homage to them. Something like, I I guess, something like stale breadcrumbs for cheese. Is that an example of of using? Yeah, so pangratato, pangratato, yeah, breadcrumbs, often referred to as euphemistically as the the cheese of the poor. Certainly, yeah, nearly everyone has a leftover piece of bread, right? So as a school, we were always using leftover bread, throwing in a paper bag in the back of the freezer. And once every couple of weeks, we pulverize it and we make our own breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm. And most people think, oh, that's, you know, you're very clever. But you know, <laughs> we didn't invent that. That's been going on <laughs> a long time. Yeah. But, I mean, if you have if you have a really silk, flick pasta with, with extra virgin olive oil and breadcrumbs go into it, changes the texture. For me, it's one of the – I like it, if not not better than she is, certainly as much. Mm. Certainly the foods of Puglia that, that are exported, the, the, the lilies are gilded. So, for example, the most famous pasta dish from Puglia is orecchiette con le cima d'arape. Mm. And that dish is nearly always, in the slento, it's always vegan. Mm. And sometimes in body, they throw an, an anchovy over the top of it at the very end of the dish. But you see it, that dish in anywhere else, then it's going to have sausage and usually two, two kinds of grating cheeses and chili peppers and whatever else. So that's partially because... You can't serve that foods that simply in a restaurant. Nobody mm. want to buy it because it's just too simple, too, mm. too close to home cooking. As much as they say, we say we want home cooking in restaurants, we really want something a little more fancy. It's also the workaround. I was saying if you find stellar ingredients, do less to them. If you can't find stellar ingredients, you have to, you have to keep adding more, which is why very often you see, I walk past Italian restaurants outside of Italy, look at the menu and see you know, pastas with 19 different mm. ingredients. So it, it's not that those dishes, those ingredients don't go together. It's just you've lost the spirit of, of Italy 11 ingredients ago. Well, talking about pasta, it's one of my very favorite things to eat, despite the fact I'm actually having mushroom risotto for dinner tonight. But mm-hmm. talk us through the best way to cook pasta. Well, so there are, I think you can kind of categorize pastas, four, four kinds of pasta, right? So you have factory pasta, which is extruded pasta, which is 
the only pasta that can be al dente, right? So that's when you come, you have a pasta that has all the water evaporated away. It's usually in a plastic bag, sometimes, sometimes a box, but usually airtight. So it's not absorbing moisture. That would be the really, really came online in the late 1800s, early 1900s, because it was the first time you had people leaving the South, moving to the North for factory work and factories themselves. So people needing, needing food and then also being able to produce in very inexpensive food. So extruded pasta, factory pasta, whatever you want to call it, really took off and started, started in the South and then moved to the North. So that there are many parts of Italy that still don't eat a lot of that. The north, the northeast and northwest don't eat a lot of factory pasta still. It really became really the democratic dish for a lot of a lot of Italy, but almost in living memory. Certainly, my grandparents would talk about see, seeing it more commonly and seeing that that that's associated with Italy with a generation before them that it was not. And then you have water-based pasta from the south, which is based on hard durum wheat. A lot of the English-speaking world calls it semolina, which makes makes very complicated. Semolina is not an Italian word; mm. it's on the dictionary. Mm. And so, really, it's really open to whatever whatever that local miller thinks it should be. But that's hard durum wheat and water. And here in the Salento, we actually add forty percent barley flour to it as well. Historically, mm. I always have mm. barley flour drops the glycemic index. Forty twenty five percent of the calories of a plate of pasta are actually metabolized in the digestion process. And barley is just now being started to be understood. Barley is now the superfood, and it will be mentioned in the same articles as avocados and goji berries and and matcha tea. But it regulates mood, it raises immunity, and and it also has a, a toothy flavor to it. And the fourth would be egg-based pasta, so either using whole eggs or just the yolks, and that's using soft winter wheat. In the north, you have egg-based pasta and south water-based pasta. And then, of course, mm-hmm. you also when you get to northern Italy, you also with a couple, a couple of freakish exceptions, it's really butter or lard based as, as the lipid versus olive oil. So, put mm-hmm. uh, Italian with olive oil would be very, very strange in in Italy. And so, uh, of those four, if, the only time you're ever going to have problems is when you try to tr- make one pasta behave like another. One of the beauties of factory pasta is you put a bag in the back of the cupboard and you, and you forget about it for three weeks and pull it out and eat it. Whereas you couldn't do that with fresh pasta. So the only way you can make fresh pasta behave like that is to, is to pull, jack it full of chemicals and then put it in a plastic tub. I would say if you're either making your own fresh pasta or buying it, you, you want to eat it as fast as possible. You buy, it, buy it in the morning, eat it for lunch versus eat it for dinner sort of a thing. Mm. There's nothing, it's not getting better over time. Mm. There are a lot of techniques that come in and out of fashion, such as a boil, boiling, bringing water to a boil, adding the pasta, and turning off the heat, keeping it covered. That that every you know, ten years that comes in is it, and clogs social media. I think the best thing you can do for for making for dried cooking dried pasta is use a lot of water, bring it to a boil, salt it. The, the shorter the pasta time, the more salt it needs. So if it's something that's very going to be very thin, it's going to or or even fresh pasta, and it's going to cook in in ninety five seconds. It's going to have to have a lot of salt in there because it doesn't have a lot of time to absorb it. Mm. But really salting your water will make your pasta taste more more like it does in Italy. And then start ta- start testing it, maybe two minutes before whatever the instructions say. Mm. Pull it out. Oil, oil Oiling the water does absolutely nothing. Mm. It just wastes the oil. Mm. Oil floats to the top. The pasta cooks underneath the surface, so there's nothing really... I, I don't know why that is. The only thing that you could say about the oil and a wooden spoon does the same is it stops break, breaks the surface tension. Mm. So it's not going to boil over. But if you put a wooden spoon in there or even a chopstick, then it will. It's not, not going to boil over anyway. So mm. Mm. for me, it's a waste of oil. 
And I've seen over the last few years chefs often putting in a scoop of the pasta water into the sauce as they're making it. Is that, is that something Italian? Yeah, no, so, the, so that also goes back to what I was saying about the difference between cooks and chefs. So chefs if you're, or a chef or a cook in a restaurant, they, they're going to be using the same water all night long. So that water is going to be really full of starch. Mm. And so it's, it's much more of a magical liaison for incorporating water in the sauce and oil in the sauce or butter, but usually oil. And so that, that starchy water is great. But if you're at home, if you're making a one pot of pasta, unless mm. you're keeping your water, which no one is, mm. then it's not, it's, it's helpful, but it's not nearly as helpful. So, so anytime you, if, if, if you're, when you're cooking the sauce, you obviously you're going to take the pasta out, unless it's a raw sauce, like you know, some sort of pesto, you're going to be adding the sauce, the pasta to the sauce for the last minute anyway. And if you find that it's not, does not have enough liquid, well, uh, I think you do a couple of couple of different things. One, put the colander in a, the your serving bowl, so that when you pour out your water, you're, you're going to be warming warming the bowl at the same time. Mm. And then you also have that water as an option if you need to. If your sauce is too too restricted, you can add a little bit of pasta water to that. Don't expect it to be as 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 magical as as somebody mm. who has that. I mean, at the end of a night in a restaurant, when they turn off the the pasta pot, it solidifies. It's so so full of starch of cooking eighty mm. or hundred orders of pasta all night long. Mm. But, but keeping that water have have an option of, of extending your pasta and also heating the bowl is a really smart move. Really good tip about the yeah. heating of the bowl. So there are certain pasta shapes that go with certain sauces, right? Can you give us some examples of the pairings and why they work? Yeah, I mean there. Certainly, if you're talking about in the broad brushstroke, such as like you mentioned, spaghetti bolognese, that would no one would ever do that in Italy because spaghetti spaghetti's from the south, raguela bolognese is from the north, so they would they would not go together. It would that would be a dish clearly someone who did not grow up in Italy did not grow up eating Italian food. Again, there's something wrong with that, but if you if there's something in, there's an, if there's a genius in Italy that you want to tap into, always go classic. So there's. There are always exceptions, but generally speaking, if it's something that's a, it's a, a heavier, thicker sauce, it's probably going to be with stabbable pasta. So something that you would eat with, eat with a fork without twisting. If it's something that's thinner, it's probably going to go with a, with a longer pasta. Spaghetti linguine, it really depends on what we're talking about. But I would say whatever you, the classic is, there's probably a reason for it, and I would go with that. In, in, the, in the event that you don't have a bag of that in, in the house that day, no one's going to be looking through your windows and, and, and coming down, breaking down your door about it. In the end, it's your dinner. Yeah. But it's, it's understandable. I mean, both from a cultural perspective that that would have evolved, as you say, you know, Bolognese comes from the north and spaghetti is from the south. They're not mm. going to be naturally partners. But also, I mean, it's, it's just logical. If you have a, a heavier meat-based sauce, you need a, a heavier pasta to be able to hold that up pasta that's like a, a smooth pasta or a pasta that has ridges in it like a penne or something mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. are for specific sauces because those sauces cling to that particular kind of pasta right yeah so the, during covid i'm sure you saw these pictures that when, when there was i think you guys were collecting toilet paper but when there was, there was this the desire to grab on as much as possible they showed the pictures of Italian supermarkets, and the only pasta that was still on the shelf was smooth <laughs> penne, so the liscia it's called. Yeah. It's the only one that did, they didn't sell out of. So could, either that is a, a trend, or, or I don't know why you'd want a smooth one. The only time you ever see a smooth pasta, factory mm. pasta in Italy is when there's a cream-based sauce, which cream sauces are not nearly as common inside of Italy as they are outside of Italy. So 
I'm going to give you a few sure. shapes and I'd like you to sure. suggest a sauce for them if you wouldn't mind. So fettuccine. Fettuccine is a fresh pasta from a fresh pasta from the north, so it's going to be with heavier heavier sauces, very often, most often animal based. So fettuccine is essentially slight, slightly wider tagliatelle. That's pasta mediana. If it were me today, I would consider that sort of a luxury dish versus actually a staple of life. Mm -hmm. Okay. What about macaroni? I mean, it's very common outside of Italy to, uh, to have macaroni cheese. Is is a cheese sauce what you would have? And so the, if you're talking about the elbow macaroni, the, what are called gomiti in Italian, it's really not common at all. It, 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 anything, you occasionally see it tossed into into soups. But it's not a it's not a common certainly macaroni and cheese the version of it I don't know if that started mm. in in the states or wherever else but it's that's not 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 Italian but even those that shape if you had if you went into a small grocery store that had twenty kinds of pasta shapes it would not be one of them mm. what about spaghetti there must be something that we can eat with spaghetti that's not bolognese. Well, yeah, so spaghetti is southern. So spaghetti is really, really adaptable. You certainly could obviously the most obvious ways. But I would say th things like you, if you're assuming you, assuming you wanted to create an Italian spirited dish, but not using an Italian recipe, certainly start off with using, starting off with pestos. So pesto just means pounded, like pesto, right? So any raw sauce would be a pesto. So I don't know, sun dried tomatoes or artichokes or put it in a blender. Toss some olive oil in it and heat your bowl when you cook the pasta. Heat the bowl. And then so because pestos are not heated, so you don't want to never want to cook any kind of mm. raw sauce. And so then it because it tends to cool down the pasta so quickly, heat the heat the pasta, heat the bowl, and then pour a raw sauce over the top of it. The generally speaking in Italy, sauces are much more Spartan. So mm. having you know, 10 clams in a, in a plate of pasta is much more than having you know, 25 clams and six strands of pasta. So really what, what is, what is the preference in the best preferences is the, is, the, is the pasta. And think of it like if you had, if you made your, your baked some really good sourdough bread and then you wanted to make a sandwich out of it, you're probably not going to put, make a sandwich of 25 ingredients. You're probably going to put something really simple because mm. the star of the show is still the bread. Mm. Do you have a favorite pasta shape? Pocketing. Pacari. Can you describe for our listeners what shape pacari is? Pacari are, some brands call them calamari because they look like squid tubes, but they collapse. And so they you have the sauce inside and outside. They started in Campania. And if you've never seen them on the bag, it's P-A-C-C-H, or pacari. And yeah, I don't I don't know if it's they tap into some childhood memory or, or whatever else, but I, yeah, I know that I'm going to be hurting, doing damage to my internal organs by quantity, but... <laughs> cook bones all day long in tomato sauce and, and then come back and use that sauce to dress the pasta. And the staff always makes fun of me that I know that's the only dish I'm ever going to have four portions of. <laughs> but every time I have pocketing. Okay, fair enough. Now, Silvestro, is there a difference between a sugo and a ragu, so a sauce and a ragu, or are they just different words for the same thing? Yeah, well, so ragu comes from stewed, right? R o r a g o u t in French, and it becomes an accent on the u in, in Italian, and it just means something that's usually stewed. It can, can, can be vegetables, but usually stewed meats. The most famous in Italy is alla, alla bolognese, which you mentioned, and then also napoletano. And napoletano is one certainly, obviously, because it's closer, is much more common in the south. Sugo is sort of a catch-all; would be almost like condiment. The, the word meaning it does. It's not. It's pretty vague what it actually means. So sugo would sort of be the maybe the word dressing, 
And then ragu would be a, usually most ragus nowadays would be eaten on a Sunday day. It's Sunday lunch. It's it's seen as being heavier and celebratory. Is is that is your pakari dish an example of a ragu? Yeah, ragu napolitano. Yes. Ragu Napolitano is a very efficient way of cooking, and it's also was, it was also big with Jews and Gentiles side by side because the Jews would just grate orange peel over the top of it instead of using cheese. Ooh. But to take the cheapest cuts of meat you can find, if you are a Christian, you could use certainly use pork, but you can use whole sausages, any any meat still on the bone, anything with a lot of connective tissue. You brown it in the biggest pot you have, you cover it with tomato sauce, and simmer it all day long. And so this is, becomes this really meat-based sauce that's very rich, very unctuous. Usually does not have vegetables in it besides onions, so it's not it's not a mirepoix like bolognese. Mm. But then what makes it brilliant is you, you scoop off the top of it and use that to dress the pasta, and then you have the second course is actually the, any kind of meat that's left in the bottom in 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 the bottom of the pot. And as I was saying. You fill up on the inexpensive thing, and then when the protein arrives, you're almost full already. So you may have half a sausage and a, and a little bit of you know meat that was stuck to the to, to the left bit of bone. It's a very efficient way of cooking. I think it's brilliant. And if somebody said you want to come over dinner tomorrow night and it wasn't convenient, I would think about it. If they said they're making ragu napolitano, I would definitely change my schedule. <laughs> okay. Then. Now let's talk polenta. It's interesting to me because corn is not something that you would normally associate with Italy. So how did it come to be in the country? And also, can you give us some tips for cooking it? Sure. So polenta started is, is the Italian word for porridge. So for most of its history, it was barley based. The Romans, one of the, Rome, the reasons the Roman Roman, ancient Romans were so successful is they would draw, grow barley, dry it, move it forward, boil it to kill all the microbes in it back before we understood, before microscopes, killed all the microbes in it, and then we eat it as a porridge. And that was so successful that because the, the armies they were competing against were planting crops and, and really slowed down by, you know, what are the armies, where they travel on their stomachs, whatever the, the truism is. And so then you had, that was the case for most of its history. The vast majority of its history was barley-based. And then you had the Colombian Exchange, where you had corn entering Europe. It took a long time to to be accepted. The reason it was, the first seduction of corn in Italy was because it was you could hedge your bets as, as far as a bad crop because you harvest corn and wheat in different seasons, and so if your wheat failed, you'd still have corn. The problem with the corn, though, is pelagra, and the Mesoamerican Indians of North America used lime, the mineral, lime tools to process their corn, and that corn was a crop came to came to Italy. No one knew anything about the lime. So in the absence of lime to process the, the corn, you have a niacin deficiency, which is a, creates a disease called pelagra, not too different than scurvy and vitamin C. So you can eat, 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 but if you're not getting the niacin, then eventually... And you had the first wave of, of emigra- massive emigration out of Italy was from Friuli in, in, in the northern part of Italy, which was the, really the polenta capital. You know, very much like the Irish potato famine, you had huge villages that are still clothes hanging in, in closets and beds still made and, and, and entire villages are emptied out. Mm. It was really because they moved their entire diet over to polenta, corn-based polenta, mm. and, and then it caught, started catching up with them. Mm. So when I was a university student, my, my roommate was from Latino, the very extreme north. And the two things that I would hear, the very first sounds I, every morning would be the, the, the macchiata, the special percolator, 
spit, spitting, making coffee, and then the polenta, the polenta paddle turning on. And it was just a copper pot that he put put a, the priority of the day is first have coffee and then get the, get the polenta going. Right. Just a copper bowl that straddled a, a hob and had with a paddle in it. And then he would have a big dollop of that for lunch and then let it set up and, and then fry it or whatever else for, for dinner. Mm. I don't know that anything, polenta is certainly not part of cuisine here. Anytime you see it in the mm. South in a restaurant that somebody had, somebody who worked in the North and decided to, you know, decided to put it on the menu. Now, Sylvester, of course, the Mediterranean diet is probably one that most professionals agree is actually one of the healthiest diets on the planet. What are some of the ways that we can all eat more like Italians to take advantage of those that healthy diet? Yeah, so the Mediterranean diet has three words, the Mediterranean diet, and the is accurate, but the other two are very slippery, what they actually mean. So most people think that everyone living on the Mediterranean is eating the Mediterranean diet, and it's actually just a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. Really, really the Salento, not even Puglia, but the southern part of the of Puglia, and parts of Crete, part, certain certain Greek islands. It's really not as common as people think it is. But it is essentially, if you had to put it into a, into a, a catchphrase, it would be high-nutrient, low-calorie foods bolstered with olive oil. Mm-hmm. So next time, if you want to increase the quality of your health and, and make you taste like you're back in Italy, I would find some ingredient that's probably deep green, mm-hmm. uh, with lots of salt so it stays green and has flavor, and jack it with lots of oil off the heat. So either essentially boil and then add raw olive oil at, at the table. I think that that's really the spirit of the Mediterranean diet versus even even fish. If you look at fish, it's, it's still fairly rare inside the Mediterranean diet. It's not it's not Okinawa where you ask mom mm. what's for dinner and she answers the name of a fish, right? Certainly in Puglia, the mussels are more common than, than round fish, mm. but you know, fish is probably once or twice a week versus a daily thing. Mm-hmm. And probably less meat than we would here in Australia or in England or America, for example. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So the, the meat thing, as I was saying earlier, is also the, the, psych, the psychology of when it arrives. So if you've already, if you've already 80% full before the meat arrives, you're going to be satisfied with less of it. If you also, if you cook it in a way that it, is, it, it produces its own sauce. So Italy is very, except for the exception of pasta, really rare to see a sauce added over the top of anything. It's usually the sauce that's produced while cooking it. And so if you, if you do that, so let's say you, I don't know, take a rabbit and sit for six people. I know you guys have mixed, mixed of mitosis issues with rabbits, but, but so rabbits very, very loved in, in Italy, but a rabbit serves six or even eight people. Mm. You're talking about the side, the piece of meat, the portion of meat, the size of a cigarette lighter. Yeah. Really, really small. So if you said, are you a vegetarian? They would say no. And you say, you said, do you eat meat? Yes. Mm. If you actually looked and weighed the amount of consumption of meat for the, for the average person in the course of the week in the South, it's very little. Maybe the maybe the mass of a pack of cigarettes or something like that. Mm. What about the the way, literally, in which Italians eat? I mean, we talked about the fact they don't eat walking around. Presumably, sure. there are other things that they do. I mean, do Italians still sit at the table in a family setting to eat? Sure. Well, so in the South, you have a four-hour break in the middle of the day. So you have nine to one, five-day or business hours. And so that four, that middle of the day is, I always describe it as that's hetero and then homo in the evening. So that you would spend time with your spouse, you would help your children correct their homework and whenever any important family discussions. And that's over usually over lunch, but it's not, it doesn't always have to be. So I think that one of the, I think a concept that's really hard for 
non-Latins get their mind around is that dining dining is not only when it, it doesn't only happen when some things are expensive, right? So most of the time, if we're going to a really nice restaurant, we want to sit and mm. take a few big breaths before we start. We really want to really notice everything we're eating. And I think in Italy, that is, you know, the soup, mom's bean soup is every bit cherished and meal is paced out. So there'll be a break between this and between that. And so you were sitting at the table, but if you actually put a stopwatch in someone's, in someone's hand, the amount of eating, they're actually eat, how much time you're eating at the table is only a fraction of it. Mm. Most of the time it's communion and spending time with your family and spending time with your spouse and, mm. or, you know, or friends or, what, or whatever else. But I think that that of dining, dining is a really loaded word as well, but really sitting and enjoy your meal, regardless of how much it costs uh, or how hard it was to put together. I think that's really a, a very, very much in line with the spirit of Southern Italy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when we come to Italy, what are some of the must-try dishes? Obviously, every region has a, a specific dish, but if you could just choose a couple, what would they be that you think really represent Italy? Well, so I'm madly in love with Basilicata in Sicily. So if, mm. I always say Puglia is my wife and Sicily or Basilicata is my mistress. So I get really <laughs> excited when I go there. I probably I get excited about going there as much. You, you guys probably come, when you come to Italy. And certainly Sicily and Basilicata have cuisines that are radically different. But I think, let's just talk about Sicily for a second. But you have the, when you understand the sugar on the, on the near coast of Sicily, how much sugar goes into savory dishes, it, for me, it always seems very, very, it seems like they're praying to a different God or something. Just very, very different when you have meatballs and sauce with orange and, and sugar in, in the sauce, right? I mean, literally putting white cane sugar into the food. Mm. That for me, it feels very exotic, very exotic and very Middle Eastern. And it just seems like that they're, it's not a, not a given that I, it's not something I would naturally do on, on my own. And I lived in, in Sicily for a year. I think they, just how profoundly regional is when so i always think of it when you're traveling and you pull into the village and you see everyone eating kebabs and drinking heineken you think well there's no here here there's nothing special about this place mm. and italy is exactly the opposite of that almost everywhere you go there there's a, a logic that's being followed that is not obvious to people that, that don't grow up in that community mm. so i don't know about specific dishes that i would recommend i would so i would to you to your listeners what i would suggest you do is always put la cucina tipica and then the, the month into into your into Google, cucina mm-hmm. tipica would be authentic. So cucina tipica body, mm-hmm. maggio, in the month of body, in the month of May, mm. in body. What is cucina tipica? And just look at the pictures. Mm. Every time before you pull into the village, you know what you, you should be eating, and you should be what's going to be seasonal. So you can see that you can see, the pictures really help as well. So if you don't know the name or the name is in dialect, I think also another thing that a lot of travelers do is they misunderstand. Turistico with mm. tourist menu mm-hmm. versus price fixed, like in French. Mm-hmm. So if you go to a restaurant that has uh, the menu already laid out for you, assuming it's a good restaurant, it's a really great way about it because you're not, we're not, we're not held up by what we don't know. Mm-hmm. They're already telling you this is something that's going to be good. You look at in in season in Italy is when the prices of all those things come down. So it's in their best interest to serve in in, in season food. So when, when I go to a little village in Basilicata or a little village in Sicily that I don't really know, it's the very first thing that I always do to, to, to arrive well-informed. So are you saying that a menu turistica is not just a kind of a, a tourist version of, of the food, but it's a taste yeah, of it's tr- I don't know why tourism, uh, tourists, I mean, we all, everyone says, oh, I'm a traveler, not a tourist, right? I don't know what the tourist is such a bad, I just wrote, a, wrote an essay, I haven't published it yet, but how to be a tourist. 
Mm. And I think there's it, it's, it's, it needs to be really re-examined. But certainly Minuturistico Turistico is, is fixed price traditional restaurants they're going to have they're going to walk in you to say yes and for 25 or 30 euro whatever it's going to be they're going to they're going to have the menu all laid out for you or maybe have two or three options mm. it's a really great way of eating and i think that i think the majority of english speakers hear the word tourist and and and, and think the worst and and completely bystep those and that, that, that's a that's a mistake that's really interesting because i would do exactly that i would always yeah. ignore the menu turistico because i would think that it, yeah. it it's kind of dumbed down versions of of you know yeah i think that that's across the english speaking world as well oh, so just finally sylvester tell us what is happening at the waiting table this year i'm sure you've got a very busy schedule yes oh, so we were supposed to be doing a netflix series so i wrote for the, the spring i had i took four five uh, five months i didn't accept any classes because we were going to be doing going into production and then mm. netflix had a lot of problems so we we will not be doing that this year i don't know if it's going to I think it'll happen. I don't mm. know if it'll be through Netflix. I don't know if it'll be in the near future, but I think it'll still happen. Mm. So I would say the biggest the, the biggest news for us, so we turned 20 this year. The first school turns 20. We also made a line of olive oils from all from cultivars from Puglia, all really high in polyphenols and antioxidants. All Each bottle has six QR codes and tells you how to use it, what, what it goes best on. And they're color coded. So it really, so I think it's going to be, I know you were having fish that goes with blue, the vegetables go with yellow. And, and so really build the habits as far as treating olive oil as if it were unique varietals of, of grapes, right? The same, same, same way matching. I'm also teaching a class with two doctors specialized in longevity and all the students are doctors, 20 students at the castle, how to eat and drink to be 100. So mm. I have a stack of books about longevity and how, how to eat to prolong both quality and, and quantity of life. Those are really my big focuses. So I have a, in July, we have a, the Jewish cooking in Southern Italy class. I don't have a Jewish background, so I really had a lot of catching up. I've been teaching that for five or six years now. And we're going down to Calabria, where there's a community where Jews are moving back, very often leaving Israel, moving back and opening synagogues in Calabria. Mm. Calabria, at one point in its history, was 40% Jewish. Mm. So just for me, the, all of, whenever come food becomes the an, sort of anthropological, sociological, that's when it really becomes stimulating. So. Well, sounds like you have a very busy year coming up. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Sylvester. I really appreciate our, it. Our, our pleasure. Thank you very much. And listeners, I'll put a link to Sylvester's cookery school, The Awaiting Table, on the Extra Virgin Food and Travel website. So keep your eye out for that. And if you're ever in that part of Italy, do go and see him at his cookery school and learn more about Italian food in, in an incredible environment in a castle. Well, that's it for another episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. Thank you, as always, for keeping me company. Until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you'd like to help support Extra Virgin and keep us ad-free, please consider buying us a virtual coffee on the website, www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. Extra Virgin Food and Travel.